0: This episode of the Naked Preacher podcast is brought to you by my wife, Eliza. And I'm Paul's wife, Eliza, and I paid Paul $5 so you wouldn't have to listen to one of his made-up sponsors this week. You're welcome. Enjoy the show. Hello friends and welcome to this episode of the Naked Preacher podcast. I am so excited uh, that you are listening and just to have you participate in this little experiment of mine. Uh, Today is a special show. It's a little bit bittersweet because um, it's uh, not the last show ever but uh, the last one maybe of season two here. Uh, The main reason being because I just don't have Uh, guests lined up yet for uh, another slate, another season. And so that's where I need your help. So if you have Ideas of people that it would be uh, helpful for you uh, to hear from, folks uh, that that you would like me to to interview, um, send me names, send me suggestions, send me topics, and uh, I will will happily start uh, putting together a a next chapter in the saga of the Naked Preacher podcast. And you can do that simply by sending an email to the Naked Preacher podcast at gmail.com doesn't get any easier than that right so today's episode isn't really a note to end on, but it's like a note to pause on, and uh, I think it's a great note to pause on because we have an amazing guest. Um, His name is Steve Cuss, and he is a uh, pastor. Um, He's got lots of experience as a chaplain, Uh, but if you relate one word to him, uh, most people who, who know him would probably use the word anxiety. Steve is someone who has dealt with anxiety a lot himself, and he has used his journey with anxiety um, to uh, learn more about what it is to be anxious, to learn how he can manage his anxiety, and ultimately how he can help others to manage theirs, how um, he can help other leaders manage leadership anxiety, and specifically pastors. Him being a pastor, um, he has a special heart for ministers, and so he he leads workshops, and uh, he writes books, Uh, geared uh, toward those in pastoral ministry to help them manage the anxiety that they feel. So whether you have, you know, chronic anxiety and it's sort of a diagnosed type of thing, or if, you know, you just deal with the general anxiety that comes from, uh, you know, leading a group of people, Steve is a wonderful help. Uh, I got to know him through his book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, And uh, I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well as some other stuff about Steve. But as for right now, uh, let's just jump right into the interview. So uh, this amazing expert can have a chance to talk to us about how sometimes preachers are anxious. Well, I am so excited to welcome to the podcast today uh, a an, an awesome author uh, he has uh, written a book called managing leadership anxiety yours and theirs uh, he is a podcast host uh, himself uh, with far more episodes uh, behind him than, than I have uh, banked uh, his his podcast is uh, managing anxiety podcast um, he served as the lead pastor of discovery Church in Broomfield Colorado for over 15 years um, and he is also a seasoned hospital chaplain with over Sixteen hundred hours of CPE experience, clinical pastoral education. Uh, which, if you have done any CPE, you know that is no small thing. So, his name is Steve Cuss, uh, and and Steve, we are excited to have you on the Naked Preacher podcast today.
1: Yeah, great to be with you, Paul. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you're you're here uh, on an episode where we're we're talking about anxiety, and I am. Excited to talk with you because uh, anxiety is um, something that I consider myself to be a bit of an expert on <laughs> through experience. Um, and uh, but before we get to talking about that, I, when we have pastors on, I love to hear about uh, you know they're they're ministry and just how you how you got into uh, the the calling that you have embraced.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I I grew up completely unchurched, so I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, and you know, not not many Aussies go to church and our family, we didn't just not go to church. It wasn't on our radar. We never talked about God or, hmm. or those kinds of things. And uh, my older sister, there's two of us, two kids. She started going to the youth group because um, a, a kid at school invited her. And I kind of went along after that. My sister became a follower of Jesus and she led me to the Lord. So so I I went from completely like secular to fully immersed in this, very loving and very fundamentalist small church. Uh, Really, it was an amazing experience. Got discipled there. So I I, I think I was like 14 when I first started going. Um, So then I went to university when I graduated high school. I was 17 and all I'd ever wanted to be was a vet. Uh, My dream was to be a farm vet, um, large animal vet. And uh, I was just miserable in university. So I was really confused um, took a, uh, the study break that they give you before exams and basically sat on the beach all week and prayed. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, this is all I've ever wanted to be. And God, I feel like God really confronted me about, you know, uh, you, can, you can help animals or you can tell people about me. And that, that was my call. It took me quite a bit of courage to tell my family because they just, at the time, particularly didn't really understand what my sister and I were into. Um, and I think as good parents, they were trying to protect us from what they thought was like a cult. You know, we, sure, sure. We, we went yeah. from completely ambivalent to all in for Jesus. And they're like, what happened to our kids? <laughs> so, you know, at, at the time as a teen, I thought we were being persecuted for our faith, you know, but I, now that I'm a parent, I think, I think my mom and dad were just trying to be good parents and, and make sure we weren't in some weird things. So it took quite a while to tell them, and they incredibly, uh, miraculously, they gave me their blessing. And um, that was, gosh, that was like 30 years ago or something. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that yeah. happened. Yeah. Did you get your education in Australia? or?
1: So, yeah. So I, I, I just was born at the wrong time of year for school. So I graduated young. I graduated high school when I was 16, not because I was smart, just because I was young. I always (laughs) have to tell people, you know, some of those kids that graduate at 16, it's because they're geniuses. Yeah, that that wasn't me. (laughs) Uh, So I graduated young. So so then I dropped out of university at 17. I was only there six weeks. And uh, the Aussie Bible college system that I was going to go to won't let you come to college till you're 20. Mm-hmm. because they don't want to graduate a young preacher. You know, these 22-year-old preachers that have a head full of Bible and, and no character development. Sure. So they basically said, look, go get a job in the workforce for three or four years, mix it up, learn how to be a Christian in a secular environment, and then come talk to us. And uh, it's a long story, but the short story is one of my jobs was to sell Yellow Pages advertising. I was one of the last of the great Yellow Pages sales guys. And I did that very well. That sounds exciting. Actually, I loved it. It's oh. I... I I did a lot of sales because when you're 17 with a high school education, no one's going to pay you money. So you have to get a job where you can, you know, earn your own money. So I did a commission sales for four years and I just happened to, and I sold all kinds of things over those four years, but yellow pages, I feel like Paul, we're getting a bit off here, but, um, it was easy to sell because people only read a yellow pages when they want to buy something like, it's not like selling newspaper advertising. So I was very good at it. I was was in the top 10 in the country the year I sold. And I won uh, a sales prize, which was an all-expenses-paid vacation to America. And uh, took some friends over here and discovered an American Bible college in Knoxville, Tennessee, not that far from you. And uh, that's where I did my education at Johnson University in Knoxville. So I moved over here when I was 20 in the 90s. And it was an incredible, great school. Uh, And then did my chaplaincy. And then I did my MDiv. Uh, all in Tennessee, so I'm. Awesome. I spent eight eight years of my life in East Tennessee in the Appalachian region. Cool. Well, thanks be to God for the yellow pages, right? Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Oh, it was an incredible education. <laughs> and awesome. you know, I would I'd recommend anybody do some kind of work in the un, unch- unchurched spaces where you really cut your teeth. So for absolutely. sure,
0: absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> so you know, talking about anxiety uh, a little bit. When in your life did you first realize that 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 was an issue for you that that's something that you dealt with? I mean, I did not
1: realize I was a highly anxious person until probably a couple of months into chaplaincy. So even my early stories that I write about in the book, I could, I can tell you now that I was extremely anxious, but at the time, I was so buttoned down and, you know, Australians, we, we work hard on our reputation of being laid back. So I was born and raised in that culture where, Nothing gets to us. We're easygoing, and it's it's true. We we actually are pretty laid back and easygoing as a species. But peel that layer back, put us under pressure, and you'll see us working hard at looking laid back. Mm. And that's what I was doing my first little bit as a chaplain. So I was 24 when I did my chaplaincy because I went to college late, and uh, probably somewhere between six and 12 weeks in to chaplaincy, I started to discover oh, I've got this whole thing under me that's Always been with me, gets in the way, uh, and it's time I pay attention to it. That, that was kind yeah. of the big idea. Yeah.
0: What, what did paying attention to it look like?
1: Gosh. Y- you know, it, it looked like so many things. It, it looked like trusting peers that were showing me things that I didn't want to see uh, yeah. about myself. It, it looked like being in the face of death and trauma and actually giving myself permission to be human. So I, I think I went into chaplaincy as a Bible college grad thinking my job was to not be human, but to be a minister. And in my mind, those were not the same things. And so that means always having the answer, representing God. So I, th- I think the journey to just be a human sized person yeah. was a big piece of that. Um, and then I think for me, it was digging into some meaning I'd made out of childhood experiences and how that was always and ever with me rather than something that was back then, it it would, that's to me, the big lesson is we all are carrying all this stuff and it doesn't take much for it to take over. Mm. And so, you know, back then I would have said, well, anxiety is just worry and fear and I'm laid back and I don't worry much. But for me, anxiety often looks like when I take charge, um, when I have to explain something, you know, if someone's not happy and I think, that what they need is more insight from me. So it gets pretty sophisticated. But those would be some signs. But a lot of it for me was letting people into my life and letting them speak into my life and then believing them. And that was hard. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and CPE is such a great model for that because, you know, as you go through it, um, I'm assuming that you're yours was much like my experience with it, where you you do have peers, oftentimes folks that you didn't know before that experience. And um, a big part of the education piece is unpacking what you see and talking about what that does inside of you and where you see God in that and how you felt in those moments. And why did I feel that way and everything? And yeah, it can really... I think rarely does somebody enter a CPE uh, experience um, with the same perspective of what it means to be a chaplain as, as when they exit it.
1: Yes, that's a great, that's a great point. It, it it became for me the number one leadership lesson of my whole life, which is I went into, I love the way you're framed that. I went into chaplaincy thinking it was about the people like if if I wanted to care for these suffering people, then I needed to focus on them. And I, I graduated from chaplaincy, saying if I want to really care for these suffering people, I must focus on myself. And that mm-hmm. sounds selfish, but it's actually much more selfless than yep. focusing on them and ignoring myself because I just was blind to all of the ways that I was getting in the way. And once you see that, you know, I, I can usually. I can usually tell how much a minister has encountered grief by their capacity to shut up Hmm. because even on my staff, when people come and join me, uh, you know, sometimes we minister together and I'll see a younger pastor trying to mansplain grief to a bunch Hmm. of suffering people. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, you're just anxious. You don't know how to be
0: quiet and present. And yeah, Yeah.
1: so I, I love the way you frame that. That's right.
0: Yeah. Um, so, speaking of CPE, then, and um, I would love to to hear. And I know you mentioned a few in the book. Uh, what are, are some of your you know most anxious CPE scenarios that you remember? Like where your heart was just beating, and you're like, "What in the world do I do?"
1: That's a that's a great question. Yeah, my my first ever story in the book is my first ever encounter. And that I just look back, even, even when I was there for the year, I was like, holy smokes, that was my first experience. Because over the course of the year, it was one of the hardest experiences, which is an entire family, 12 or 15 people screaming at the top of their lungs because the matriarch suddenly died on the surgery table. And what I didn't know as a as a rookie chaplain that I learned within the first six weeks is... Those scenarios, you're just setting up space for three hours for them to be physically safe. Yeah. And then you're managing everyone else's anxiety, the nurse and the other patients and all of that. But as I got deeper into it, um, it's, it's interesting you ask the question because I have some pretty vivid memories that I've actually never talked about. Uh, so so um, toddler burn victims. Um, mm. like I, I'm, I'm probably still triggered by what I saw. When uh, yeah. there was there was some toddlers that the mum you know she's an exhausted mum and she let them play in the basement. There was a kerosene lamp, and next thing you know they're rushed into the hospital. And and some of those stories are brutal because you're right in the thick of it. You you, phys- you see these kids, um, and and I can still see as I'm telling you now I'm kind of reliving it. You're you're trying to care for this guilt ridden mum because it was her son and her son's friends. So she has to call a mum and say oh, here's what good. happened. And then they get helicoptered to Cincinnati, the burn specialty place. And so you don't get closure. You know, I don't know what happened to those kids. Right. right. That would be, that for me would be one of the premium ones. Most of my worst stories involve kids. I did six yeah, months in, yeah, six months in pediatrics and and, and NICU, the neonatal, the pre, preemies. Uh, and then of course, when you're on call, you do emergency. Um, some really profound experiences. I remember a, a Muslim family, paging me and their teenager had cancer and they were asking me to pray. And I I don't know if I would say this to them now. I I, I might, I probably would, but I I remember saying to the dad, very respectfully. And I said, I just want you to know that, that you're asking me to pray for your son. I would love to pray for him, but I, I, I don't want to offend you, sir, but I will be praying to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And um, because I could have gotten him an imam, if he needed an imam, I'd be happy to Mm -hmm. help him with Mm -hmm. that. And I just never forget him saying, "Of of course you're going to pray to Jesus. Why do you think I asked a Christian?" Mm, and what he wow. was saying is, he he wasn't critiquing his own faith. He was just saying, "My prayers aren't working, and I'm desperate. I just want my son, to yeah. you know, be okay." Yeah.
0: Wow. Beautiful. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's I, I don't know. I don't know, Paul. It's, sometimes the stories are. Like, like five deaths in a day, you know. Where that fifth death, you're like, can't do I have
0: it in me? Can I yeah. do another one? Some of that
1: I, I still remember.
0: Well, that the story you shared about the the Muslim family reminds me um, in the book where you talked about um, being asked, uh, I believe, to to baptize a um, infant that w- had had passed away, or, or yeah. um, and uh, and that being, you know, like one of those quick thinking internal struggles where you think about, I think it's when you were talking about the giants who sit on our shoulders yeah. and you were you're using it in, in the sense of, you know, we, we all have these, uh, these mentors or professors or people that we've looked up to, uh, s- some of whom we've even put on the pedestal of being the the super Christians, and um, and I know in my mind I, I have spent a lot of time thinking, well, what would they say about this? What would yeah. they do if they knew that I was doing da da da, and and that can influence the decision making um, instead of what 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 I feel and, and how God is moving in me at that moment. And, um, and, uh, you, you know, talked about how, even though that that was not something that was a part of your tradition, um, that for the sake of that family and knowing that that was important to them, um, that, that you did it and and you did that with, with, you know, all the genuine heart and and everything that you could muster out of, out of love for that family, knowing what that would mean to them.
1: Yeah. I, I, It's hard to tell, you know, when you're that young, when you're in your 20s, I I don't think I can accurately say what was my tradition and what did they place on me Mm -hmm. versus what was my human development, black and white. I I, I always want to be careful. Like a lot of us, we like to take shots at whatever tradition we were formed in. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I always want to be a bit careful with that because, so I don't know if I graduated from a Bible college that was pretty strict on that or if it was my black and white thinking, but what was for sure is I carried into that room a much deeper passion for theology than for hurting people, mm. and and somehow feeling like I had to owe them my theological view when they they could give a damn. Like what they're they're holding right. a premature baby. I mean, I still again, it's and I, I remember holding that baby in my hand, and <sighs> and just looking at a a, a a tiny child that was not fully formed, and here I am trying to teach them about Acts chapter two. It's
0: right. Yeah, it's anxiety. That's that's yeah. how you know someone's anxious. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember one of my more anxious uh, CPE experiences was when I um. Uh, you know was on call and so when you're on call that was always the most anxious time for me because you don't know what's coming up that's when you yeah. have to cover the trauma center and and you're there at you know four in the morning when nobody else is and you can't get sleep because you don't know when that beeper is going to go off and all that stuff and um i got a, a, a call um it's probably it wasn't super late one night you know maybe nine ten o'clock uh for you know a, a man who um had he had passed away just just recently um and so i just went to to sit there to to be with him until some family could come but in that interim period some of his neighbors came to see him and they were of uh of a different culture and spoke very broken english and um though i thought the nurse had communicated this to them um they didn't know that that he was dead and so when i was speaking to him and and everything and or to them and uh, speaking about him and and made a comment about him you know having passed away uh the i remember just the mom especially just flipping out just you know not uh, i think the culture was such where they had um Difficulty being around dead bodies and things like that, and she had already she had kissed his forehead and things, and so they they just freaked out, and and I mean she ran out of the room, and and I was like, what what what, what do I do with this? And I I caused this, <laughs> like I let her know that he was dead, and you know, and and yeah, those are the situations where I mean you can't take a seminary class on that, and you just uh, they're, they're difficult and they're awkward and they're hard, but praise God for them because that's life, right? We, we don't know what the situations are going to be. And, and our job isn't to know every single situation or every single answer it's to, to, to the best of our ability, be the presence of God, uh, in, in the midst of anxiety to be that non anxious presence. Um, and because God is a non-anxious presence. You know, I've, I've heard you on a podcast before, I think, say that anxiety is not of God. Um, and so, you know, when, when there's anxiety, that, that's a sign that you're maybe relying more on yourself than you are on Jesus.
1: Yeah, it's definitely fascinating, particularly with some non-white cultures. I understand what you're saying. Some of the cultures, there's like almost a superstition Mm-hmm. But then other cultures, I, I think actually um, have a lot to teach those of us who are white on how they grieve. And you know, I've been with several different cultures in death where it's almost like they're purging their emotions in the loudest, most violent way possible. Mm. And I, I, I really like that. I, I think it's interesting to me how much it inconvenienced the staff. You know, when you had maybe someone from a culture that really expresses grief loudly, what we would call the wailing and flailing. Mm-hmm. And the staff are like, "Ah. Oh. And I'm thinking, man, I think those of us who are in white Western culture, we're missing out on something because we' we're so buttoned down, we're so afraid of death. but yeah, um, yeah, it's, yeah but yeah, that non-anxious presence, it's interesting how much work it takes to manage your anxiety when everyone around you is anxious. It's so contagious. Um, and a lot of for me, the anxiety was from the expectation of of staff. They, they kind of would want me as the chaplain just to settle everything down because they, you know, they're trying to do their job. So that that was a lot of the work is just letting people down at a pace that I could stand. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: well, managing the expectations of, of staff is kind of like managing the expectations of those who are anxious in a church. And yeah. uh, so that sort of helps us transition to the um, question of, of how, you know, does or did anxiety play a role in in your ministry like sort of as you um stepped into a pastoral role
1: yeah yeah after chaplaincy i went to grad school got a a master of divinity and so i did some youth ministry during that time and um i think for that it was a wonderful church in in virginia uh just amazing people but i was definitely um, bringing change. So I think change management, it really helped. Mm. Um, I, I think, cause, you know, obviously I was trained in family systems theory, the, the George Dobler, who ran the chaplaincy at university of Tennessee hospital, he was trained by Murray Bowen, the founder of systems oh, wow. theory. Yeah. Yeah. So George gave us a lot of systems theory while we were there and he would let me sit in on his premarital counseling. Like I, I got an incredible, psychology education while I was a chaplain. So then what I love about systems theory is that it really trains you to stop blaming people and also to see what you are doing to contribute to the problem. Those are two of probably my favorite things about it. Whereas I think it's a, it's classic for a young pastor to come in get so-called fed up with the old people or, you know, like we pastors, we caricature church people in a way that makes me really uncomfortable because these, these are the saints, these are the people that are faithfully given and served and delivered potlucks in the grief, like these mm-hmm. are real, you know, but we, we come in with all these blustery ideas with no respect for heritage. And then we blame people when they resist change. Mm-hmm. Systems theory says everyone resists change, including you as a leader, like, you're not. By the way, Paul, this is another rant that I can't stand when I go to a pastor conference and pastors get on stage and talk about the congregation like they're a different species than we are. Mm-hmm. Like we're all sheep, like enough, yeah. right? Right? Like we're all sheep. You cut me, yeah. I'm, I'm the same DNA as my congregation. So, so pastors also resist change. But in that youth ministry, I think what was great was understanding systems theory, resistance to change. And then how do I move toward the people who are resisting change to dissolve the resistance and get us emotionally connected? Not in a manipulative way, not so I can get my way, but so that we can move forward together. Mm-hmm. And that that really worked. We, we bonded really well in that, that small church in Virginia. Yeah. Uh, to this day, I have just very positive feelings about those people. I think I was well regarded there. Um, And then, you know, after, after that, I went to Las Vegas and did crisis intervention at a large church and just more and more practice of people in chronic poverty, systemic poverty, chronic desperate crisis. Mm -hmm. They, 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 some of those people, the way we used to train our people is like, they use manipulation not because they're manipulative, but because it's just another tool to get what they need, which is money or food. Or, mm-hmm. So again, to stop blaming the poor for being poor, and to see it through the lens of manipulation for them is just another essential survival tool. So don't take it personally. Figure out. So right. you know years of that, and then lead pastoring for me remains the hardest ministry role. It's much harder than chaplaincy. I would take chaplaincy any day over lead pastoring if we're talking about dif- level of difficulty, mm. and I think it's because in pastoring a local church, the breadth of skills required is pretty insane. Like it, it's beyond a CEO and it's beyond a counselor. It's it's a it's all of those tools plus more, and and you're always on call. You know there is mm. a twenty four seven nature to it. And then the the depth that each role requires. So I think it is a breadth and depth challenge that I have felt I've dealt with the most anxiety as a as a lead pastor of a suburban church over any other role I've had.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do I I can imagine that in your role um you know, and and the platform that you have, and and the way that you help train leaders and things that you probably encounter um, a lot of a lot of ministers. Do, do you hear sort of common themes about what what makes you know what makes them anxious about about ministry? You know, whether it's pastoral youth or or, or whatever. You know, uh, what's making ministers anxious out there? Yeah, the most
1: mostly what's making ministers anxious is the inner critic inside our head that says you should know better, you should be doing better. You're no Mm. good. And also the external critics that all decided in 2020 that they should speak their mind more. So like, as I'm talking to pastors, I think we're all still recovering from 2020 Mm. and it's interesting. One of the things that anxiety does is it makes you speak in absolutes and exaggerations. So one of, the, one of my tools is I'm always diagnosing people's anxiety through the lens of their vocabulary. So if, if one of the things I notice a lot of pastors are saying now is they'll say, no matter what decision we made, half of the church was mad. Now, mm-hmm. when I hear that, that tells me the pastors in the grip of anxiety, because it's actually not true that half of the church is mad. What's actually true is there's a chunk of the church that's just fine. But the people who are mad, there are more of them than there were before. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not the same. That's not So if you have a church of 1,000, 500 aren't mad. You're probably only hearing from 40 of them. Mm-hmm. You used to only hear from 10 of them. And so it feels to you like a deluge. Right. Um, so I, I hear that. And so I think what happens is people criticize us we're already fairly giving ourselves a C minus about the job we're doing. Like, I think most pastors are like, Oh, it's, it's just one of those jobs that is never ending. You ne- it's, it's just a messy job. So, yeah. so I think sometimes that external criticism kind of coalesces with the inner critic and forms this like Lord of the Rings type monster coming out from the ground. Like, <laughs> like, it's almost like it the external critic breathes with our inner critic. And now we're in the grip of this doom. So I'm yeah. hearing a lot of that and I'm, I'm really concerned about that. I'll, I'll say on the other side though, Paul, there are so many news stories about pastors doing stupid things, having affairs or these public pa- arrogance, narcissism. I believe all of that. I believe that that's really happening. So the, those yeah. stories about those people The overwhelming majority of those stories are true. I just want to say that I deal with a lot of pastors and the overwhelming majority of them are just these quiet, faithful saints. Hmm. They're not, they don't have a platform big enough to get to the media to where those watchdog blogs are exposing them. These are just friendly neighborhood pastors. And these are people of goodwill, good heart, deep passion for Christ, hard workers, sharp. So, when it, when it's interesting because when I started my podcast, you know, my podcast involves guests. Uh, I was concerned that I would meet some of these guests and come away thinking, oh, these are bad people. But I'm, I'm now 100 episodes in. That's about 75 guests. And overwhelmingly, I'm talking fairly significant names, like people like Max Licato has been on my show, Henry mm-hmm. Cloud, Kay Warren, Rick Warren's wife. These are, these are amazing. I I come away from those interviews. Like these are amazing human beings. These are just Mm -hmm. incredible human people serving Jesus faithfully. So I do love as much as church leadership's reputations in the gutter right now, because of the national spotlight. Mm -hmm. I think every one of us could name a dozen local leaders that we're looking up to and saying, man, these are incredible people. So that, uh, that has me really
0: encouraged. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you making that point about uh, the 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 feeling of so many pastors uh, that that you know, like no matter what decision, half the church is mad, you know, or whatever. And 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 you know, I have found that with anxiety, such a helpful tool is is think you know, pausing and thinking rationally, you know, uh, saying what's reality, what's not. And um, in fact, I I'll I'll show you right here. I've got. I got two bags of pennies. These these bags are full of, full of pennies. Uh, these are pre-COVID bags of pennies now because they used to they represented how many people were in the congregation that we would see on a regular Sunday. So it was about five five hundred pennies. And I've got, you know, 470 or so in this one bag and 30 or so in this other bag. So that when the critiques were, were big and heavy and it felt like the whole church was, you know, or half the church was in that mad state or whatever. I I would make myself hold these bags to really feel, okay, what, what you're thinking is, is this, but, but, you know, really feel the weight. it's it's not, it's not that, um, it's not as extreme. Don't catastrophize, you know, I'm sure that's, word you use a lot but. yeah
1: that's really powerful that's a great physical way to do it especially holding the weight of them I yeah love that.
0: it makes it makes such a difference yeah. um so uh well i love that in your book you outline a spiritual approach to defining anxiety viewing it through the lens of of the gospel and jesus desire to set us free from what ensnares us and yeah, i'd love you to you know comment on how you think anxiety is a spiritual issue yeah,
1: it, it, it's hard to describe briefly, but in short, um, the word anxiety uh, it covers more territory than I mean. So there's lots of different kinds of anxiety is what I'm saying. And there's several forms of anxiety that are legitimate that I'm not talking about. So I'm always mm-hmm. wanting to be careful. So for example, if somebody has a traumatic experience in their life and they have PTSD, I'm not making any comment on PTSD. I think it's real. It should be treated oh, yeah. by a professional. Uh, there's one form of anxiety that I focus on, which is in, in clinical terms, it's called chronic anxiety. And it's mm-hmm. what I call leadership anxiety. And that one, excuse me, I believe is spiritual because it's all, chronic anxiety is generated by false belief, false need and false assumptions. So you just gave us a beautiful example with the pennies where you catastrophize, you've now moved into um, a false reality, mm-hmm. right? Wherever the half of the church is against me, this kind of stuff, and you're using the pennies to ground you back in truth. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you, for people who are listening, who struggle with like a social anxiety disorder or generalized anxiety, PTSD, I believe those things are all worthwhile of treating professionally. I don't think there's any beef spiritually with those. But when it comes to our false assumptions and moving into catastrophizing, exaggerating, doom, mm-hmm. and you actually see it all through the Bible, like Elijah, after he defeated Ahab, he then retreats, goes into a depression. He yep. is now in the grip of chronic anxiety. And what chronic anxiety does is it stops you from being able to see what's really going on. And it, it, it changes reality. It distorts your reality. That's why it was so powerful as a chaplain, because my goal as a chaplain was to empty myself or ask God to empty me of my chronic anxiety so I could actually see what's going on. Hmm. And what it would look like when I'm in the grip of anxiety is I am depending on myself. So maybe somebody has me by the shoulders and they're yelling at me, how could God allow this to happen? Now that happened a lot. That incident happened to me a lot. If I am, uh, if if I've allowed God to deflate me of my chronic anxiety, and I'm able to see what's happening, I know they're not asking me a question; they want me to answer. Hmm. They're simply expressing their grief, and what they need is a calm, kind presence. But when I have not managed my anxiety, I start living for self. So one example would be: I believe that anytime someone asks a question of anybody, I must answer it. Mm. Now, when I say that, that sounds crazy. You're like, what, are you arrogant? No, I Mm -hmm. just, well, I mean, yes, I am arrogant, but also (laughs) I don't like feeling stupid. And so one of the ways I mitigate the feeling of being stupid is being helpful with knowledge. So we're getting a little sophisticated. So when someone has me by the shoulders, they're already hyped up with anxiety. I'm catching their anxiety. Now it's making that unholy breeding program out of Lord of the Rings with mm-hmm. my existing anxiety. And I'm actually trying to answer the question, how can God allow it to happen? Now, you know, I am no longer living for God because I'm now operating out of what I need, what not what the situation mm-hmm. needs. Mm-hmm. Now this happens hundreds of times a day. So the challenge is to get really clear on what you think you need that you don't really need. And all of us have Fifteen to fifty false needs, and the more you can name them concretely, like I just did for you, the more you can say. Anytime someone asks a question of anybody, I must answer it. (laughs) Right. Right. That's confession. That saying that, like the way I just did to you now, I'm confessing my sin, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And so, what I try to do is I try to remove the moral element to it. I'm not saying that sin isn't moral. It's just that it gets in the way of this conversation because I believe that that is a sin. But I think mm-hmm. as the church we put so much moral value on sin. No, right. it's I'm just missing God. I'm yeah. simply yeah. missing God. So I don't know if that helps. It's it's often hard in an audio format to help
0: people understand that. But that's kind of the steps involved. Yeah, no, it makes sense to me. And and uh, I love that you mentioned that we we do this hundreds of times uh, a day. Um, and you know what we're um. Working against as as we try to manage our anxiety, and and uh, thankfully uh, we have the help of the Holy Spirit of of God, you know, to to assist us because yep. it can sometimes seem a superhuman task. Um, is that it, you know it requires great discipline to make some of those cognitive moves. It uh, a lot of cognitive behavioral decisions are required to train your brain to think in ways that seem unnatural to it especially if you've dealt with anxiety and followed it all your life and the way that I think about it is it's like you have to form like you're you're forging new neural pathways like digging new streams for water to flow down and and rerouting that water from the well-worn rivers that where it's used to flowing you know and that that takes time um, that takes discipline that takes you know sitting, uh, sitting with, with God and confessing those, uh, those sins, so to speak. And
1: yeah. 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 And it absolutely takes other people that love you and that you trust. I, Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone can do this work on your own. In fact, I think on your own is the problem because, because you have to say it out loud. It's really humbling. It's, It's so humbling. Even to this day, I've been doing this work a long time. When I sit down and confess a false belief to someone, I'm like, I can't believe I've been believing that all my life. But if I, if I try to work it on my own, I don't get very far. But if I confess it to one another, uh, I get further. And, and the other thing I want to say, Paul, is when Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then Paul, Paul in Galatians makes this comment where he says, it's for freedom that we're being set free. And you're like, are you just like talking in circles? But it's actually really profound that, I, I think truth sets us free and lies keep us bound. And so I'm passionate about what lies do I believe? Because the more I can mm. step into truth, the more of God's gospel I experience for myself. And, you know, you asked about pastors and what they're carrying. Possibly the top issue I find with pastors, once we get past the criticism, that's usually what people first want to talk about. The number one issue when pastors feel safe and maybe I'm coaching or we're just one on one. Is when we start getting into okay, what's the gap between what you believe about God and what you experience from God? And most pastors don't know how to manage that gap. Hmm. I believe God loves me, but I don't feel, I don't experience it. I tell, I can tell other people God loves them in a way yeah. that makes them cry, but I'm yeah. not experiencing it for myself. And I believe this is the key to that that stream that you're talking about is is truth and getting getting clear on the lies that we believe. And the truth that is God, you know, especially with our inner critic, what does it say about us that most of us are harsher to ourselves than God is? Mm. So we are. That's that's how you know you're self righteous is when you're putting your trust in your own opinion of yourself over God's opinion of you. That's mm. that's pretty arrogant.
0: Yeah, man, good word. Um, well, let's. Let's move from talking about the in individual to the institution. Um, you know, the personal experience with anxiety to the corporate experience, because it's normal for organizations like churches uh, to experience anxiety. And that we, um, I, you know, for all of the wonderful New Testament classes that I took in divinity school, and Greek, and Hebrew, and all that stuff that I, I certainly use. I don't know if I use anything more than what I learned in my family systems uh, in the congregational context class, uh, which talked about how anxiety functions in a corporate setting. Um, so because it does, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, same more It sure does. Yeah. <laughs> So what 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 would you have to say about that? How does how does anxiety, um, you know, uh, move from just something in, in individual experiences to something that people experience corporately in something like a church or you know a, a business or a, a a a team or whatever a family, else? Family, yeah. Family, yeah.
1: Right. So 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 I think the simplest idea is that you know everything we've been talking about up to this point is about me about you, an individual, if you just picture that everyone is carrying like an invisible bucket, that's almost full to the brim of anxiety all the time. And then it doesn't take much for that to then spill over, uh, like boil over like a pot on a stove. So now you take a congregation. So, okay, every individual in that congregation has that same invisible bucket. So just take 2020, 2020 had people's health and safety. It had political division. It had um, systemic racism. And then we, we had it probably, I think, the most anxious person in the country was the president. Mm. So the simple idea is the more anxious the leader, the more anxious the people. Uh, because we all catch each other's anxiety. And then when you add hierarchy and power, it like magnifies anxiety. So regardless of your political affiliation, just objectively looking at President Trump's behavior... He was typically the most anxious person in any room he walked into. And you can see it the way his staff operated and people. So from a systems perspective, what you're looking for is how is anxiety spreading? Who's spreading it? And how can we help deflate the anxiety? Because what we're doing is we end up dumping our bucket. We're just trying to relieve our anxiety. So we're dumping it into each other. It becomes like a water wheel. That just spins and spins faster, and the mm. water wheel becomes a roller coaster ride. You end up getting motion sick. And or in the case of our country, you storm the Capitol. Mm. And so you can look at the January 6th event through the lens of anxiety spreading in a group. It, I've actually researched some of the interviews that the FBI and have now done with the people who found themselves in the Capitol. And there were absolutely some that intentionally made that move, but most of the interviews. I'm not excusing these people, by the way. I, I think they should go to jail. But most of the people that found themselves in the speaker's office, like rummaging through Nancy Pelosi's desk, <laughs> were saying to the FBI, we don't really know what happened. We, next thing we know, we're inside the Capitol. They just got caught, caught up in it. They got caught in anxiety. And so an angry mob. So then if you look in the Bible, you can see in John chapter 8, when Jesus confronts mm, yes. the, the mob with the stones, they're about to stone that woman they're anxious. I'm not, again, I'm not excusing it. They should be arrested for violence. (laughs) I'm just saying that you can understand a lot of human behavior through the lens of how anxiety spreads. So, you know, for your average pastor, who, who is spreading gossip? Who, who is the negative voice? Because negativity, cynicism, sarcasm, these are all evidences that someone's in anxiety's grip. Yeah. So that cynical person that always says, yeah, but uh, they're anxious and their anxiety spreads. And if there are not calm people in the room, they'll catch that cynical mm-hmm. person's anxiety. Now you have a mob against you that, that yeah. you're finding all this resistance. So it's complex, but um, I, I'd highly encourage any pastor to do this systems work because we can all learn it. It's not- absolutely Yeah, any one of us can learn this. It's really powerful once you yeah. start to see it.
0: Well, and like you said, it it benefits- it's benefits go beyond just church. You know, one of the greatest is in your, in your own family, you know, your uh, family of origin, the family that that you have now. I mean, it's just, it's invaluable. Um, And so I would, uh, I, I would, uh, suppose that uh, a book that you might recommend would be Friedman's Generation to Generation, uh, where he sort of outlines uh, a lot of Bowen family systems theory and then takes yeah. it and applies it congregationally. Um, amazing book. A- any yeah. others that you might recommend?
1: I think free- I think Gen to Gen is his best um, um, uh, academic book. I think his best book is uh, I might have it here. Friedman's Fables. It's his least least known book and I think his most accessible because just the the way he tells absurd and hilarious stories that show this systemic dynamic. Um, You know, there's so many great books. Um, um, Pete Scazzaro is probably the most famous well-known systems theorist. Okay. And so any of Pete's books, uh, his Emotionally Healthy stuff, it's all steeped in systems theory. He, his doctorate is in genograms and family of origin stuff. And Pete himself is just an amazing guy. Uh, then there's a group out of Texas, Jim Harrington, Trisha Taylor, and Robert Creech. By golly, they're all incredible. So Robert is a, is a Baylor, um, Baylor University professor. Jim mm-hmm. and Trisha run a systems theory company where you can get coaching from them. They have a book called The Leader's Journey. Uh, Robert recently came out with a book, I think it's called Family Systems in Congregational Life. Mm. That to me has become now the most accessible book because Robert takes, he teaches the systems theory briefly and then he shows how it looks in preaching, how it looks in a pastoral visit, how it looks in a staff meeting. Oh, it's so good. Um, So uh, I I could pull up the title if we need to get it correct because I may have it wrong. But um, that, that book is golden. And then there's a lady in Australia, um, Jenny Brown. Yeah, Family Systems and Congregational Life is Robert's book. Um, Jenny Brown, um, I'll have to Google that book because she was the editor of it. Um, I, sh- I should have these books memorized. Bowen Family Systems Theory and Christian Ministry. She gets a bunch of people to talk about the implications of it. There's a lot of people doing some great work nowadays in in this field it's almost like enneagram was discovered like five years ago was blowing up i'm kind of seeing uh-huh. system theory just starting good as we're all desperate for the next cool idea you know yeah those of us who have been doing system theory forever
0: we're like oh finally people are catching fun <laughs> <laughs> yes i mean it, it's it's i i think it has to be required reading required work for uh for any um any any leader um especially those in churches you know and and do that work where you look at your own you know genogram and family of origin and all that stuff so you understand who you are as a leader and what you're bringing to the table and um and then then looking at how uh how you know anxiety is functioning in your organization um again just so you can be that you know you, uh, to go back to Jesus in in John chapter 8 um there was all the anxiety swirling around and this lady did this, this law says this, and Jesus, you, I mean, it's palpable how at peace he is in that he's just writing in the dust. I mean, he's, and, and he is the quintessential non anxious presence and um and, and you can, just with a with a sentence he diffuses all of that anxiety and it's because he is removed you know from it he's as my professor said you know the only fully self-differentiated person to have to have ever you know walked the face of the earth and so that's yeah that's somebody to to model your life after for sure it's, um, uh, it's interesting.
1: I've got a few book projects cooking, and one of them I'm most excited about is I want to do a devotional or a theological written book uh, through the lens of chronic anxiety and, and just almost do a commentary of the Gospels. Mm. And when did Jesus de-escalate someone's anxiety? When did anxiety come at him and he didn't catch it? And then when was he intentionally poking it to make people more anxious? Does that happen hmm. too? But, but you, from, from 12 years of age when he was at the temple and Mary and Joseph left him behind, that's, you can see it right there. Mm-hmm. Don't you know I had to be about my father's business? He's differentiating. And he, but he's not accusing, he's not pushing them away. All the way to on trial for his life with Pontius Pilate, having a theological, philosophical conversation while on trial for his life. It's, it's incredible. So I, I think it's a fascinating study. I think it would really help people to see that So they can start to notice themselves because all we're trying to do is help people notice when we're anxious and help people notice when anxiety is coming at us. Yeah. When we're catching it. And then everyone already notices when you walk into an anxious room, but now what do you do about it? Hmm. Those are kind of my three jobs now is I'm training people to notice my own notice when I'm catching others and notice when I step in, how do I actually, what's going on and how do I diffuse it? Right. So I think a, a gospel treatment of that would be really interesting.
0: Oh yeah. Um, I, I say fast track that one, man, (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll uh, definitely get a copy. Well, um, this has been awesome. And, uh, what, the way that we like to close out the episodes of the Naked Preacher podcast is to to offer a, a skin invitation where I ask just uh, three kind of simple short questions uh, where you can be, you know, invite you to be a bit more vulnerable and and authentic in what you share. Uh, so uh, if if you will entertain me, I'd love to ask you uh, just these three little questions here. First Let's being, all right first question is what is a time that you just blew it in ministry?
1: <laughs> oh man there are so many like I, I do think um, letting yourself fail publicly and getting up again is the only way to survive in ministry so I've got a legion of examples um, <clears throat> the, the biggest one that sticks in my craw that I struggle to forgive myself we we were a portable church for 14 years. And I was not here when that started. So out of those 14 years, I was here for eight of them. But the church had been portable for a long time when we finally were able to build a building on some land and move in. And we almost closed as a church. It's a whole story. But we finally moved into our own building. And our city is a particularly difficult city for churches to build in, both because of the cost of the kind of building they want and because of the ambivalence to churches. Hmm. Um, so we were the first church to build in 25 years. Wow. That made us pretty iconic. Uh, we, I did not become a better preacher. Our worship leader did not offer better music, but we became the cool church in town and we quadrupled in four years. We wow. went from about 280 to about 1,200. We just did a rocket ship ride of growth. So here we have 1,250 people in a 300-seat auditorium. We are stuffing people in four services in every corner of our building and I launched a quick half-baked capital campaign to try to get a small youth building built because we were heavily in debt. We could not really afford to borrow more to build more. Uh, and I don't like the borrow to build model. Right. So we tried to raise cash for the small youth building and it just failed. We did not. We were growing so fast and drowning so much, we did not have the wherewithal to do it properly. Um, you should never build a small building when, uh, you know, cause it, it, the, the architect kept making it bigger and bigger and then it got out of scale. So we had to fire the architect. They could not manage their costs. And out of that money we raised, we were able to steward about half of it for f- that benefits future buildings, but about half, we probably blew. So about $150,000 we, oh, man. we squandered in a building design process that we'll never use. And that, that, that hurt, sure. And, you know, I've got some critics that enjoy bringing that up as one of their hobbies, and and they're right. I mean, we do yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um,
0: yeah. Those. Uh, fortunately, I have not had to uh, lead through a capital campaign, um, but uh, that's uh, that's definitely on the anxiety list for me. So maybe I'll, I'll shoot you an email when that day comes up. Because... I've uh, I've led four of them, so yeah, Ooh. three of them went great. Well, you know what. <laughs> That's, that's even better than what Meatloaf said. He said two out of three ain't bad. I said right. three out of four is you're, you're doing all right. right. Um, all right. Well, what's, what frightens you in ministry?
1: I think what frightens me the most is being on the wrong side of God. Hmm. Um, you know, right now, I feel like our, our church is not an affirming church of gay marriage. And we are actively seeking the scriptures. Like, uh, what if we're on the wrong side of this? Because so many of my gay sisters and brothers are saying we are. You know, if, and, and we, we have gay people in our church and we welcome the LGBT and trans community. But we would not do a gay wedding. Uh, if you are a gay couple at this point in our church, you can't lead. And I think what frightens me is either side of that theological question. We are a church that has always positioned ourselves under the authority of scripture. Yeah. But what frightens me is my capacity to not read what's actually in scripture or to place onto scripture what's not actually there. So we are currently seeking that out and that's
0: frightening. Um, Either way we land feels frightening to me. Yes, Absolutely well blessings on you as you do that do that hard um uh, hard uh, but important uh, work i know you guys will do it with genuinely and with with all the heart that uh and sincerity that god has has given you yeah um so well then uh to to end on a on a solid note what's one thing that you absolutely rock in ministry
1: i don't think there's anything that i rock Um, I, I think I'm a, I'm a classic Jack of all trades, master of none Uh pasta. Right. So I think I get a solid B plus in almost everything I do. Like, Mm -hmm. so I think, I guess what I rock, I guess I'm nimble. Um, I don't get stuck very easily. And I guess I rock being at peace with being a human sized pasta. But when I look at my actual performance, um, I'm a I'm a decent preacher, but not amazing. I'm a decent leader, but not amazing. Um, I think what I rock at is saying that's enough. Like God, mm. God's spirit is the one that really is in charge, and God doesn't need me to be amazing. God just needs me to be human-sized, a vessel of clay. Yeah, I think probably that I've come to peace with that, I guess. But wow! But when I look at the facets of my ministry, I'm I'm pretty average at most
0: of them. Well, I, I think being able to allow yourself to be human-sized and not feel like you have to rock anything is, uh, in itself, quite an amazing achievement that many of us ministers uh, would would uh, be, be better if we could achieve. So, but I'll say in answering that for you: I think you rock all of this anxiety stuff, all of it. Like you are helping so many people, you have helped me i mean i've I've struggled mightily with anxiety in my life and and um and in in ministry um to to pretty dark degrees at some point but um these last couple years uh through you know coming in contact with folks like you and, and, um, and, and others and, you know, doing some of the stuff that you're talking about, having folks in my life to help me see reality and everything. Um, Yeah. It's, it's just been such a brighter and, and uh, more exciting experience. And so just thank you for the work that you do and being a good steward of your story and uh, helping others um, manage theirs. I'm,
1: I'm really gratified that this part of my work is, helping people that's really i wrote the book to bring relief so when i hear that it is i just i'm so thrilled and it's been a wild journey for me COVID, i think really escalated people's need for this so sometime mm. in the next six months i'll be moving into this work full-time where mm. where rather than a local church being my congregation pastors are becoming my my congregation and i'm i'm ecstatic to be able to help bring relief because awesome. it's it's a tough I've had a lot of different roles in my life and pastoring is the toughest for sure. Yeah.
0: Well, well, I'm, I'm glad you're out there, man. And, and glad God's put the calling on your life that he has and appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me today. Oh, you bet, Paul. It was a real privilege. Thanks a lot. Yes, sir. You have a good one. All right. Well, thanks again to Steve Cuss for joining us and sharing with us uh, his journey with anxiety and how he has um, used it to uh, really be a blessing to other people. Uh, if you want to learn more about Steve, you can go to his website. It's uh, Steve S T E V E Steve Cuss C U S S Words dot com. Steve Cuss Words. Dot com, which is a really clever website, and if my last name was Cuss, I would definitely do something like that as well. Um, also, Steve wanted me to let you know that coming up in August, uh, so a couple weeks, he's got um, something called CapableLife.me, uh, CapableLife.me, and it's uh, basically an online membership for pastors and faith leaders uh, to help them discuss anxiety and learn more about it and 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 learn how to manage their own. Uh, it's a subscription service. It's twenty eight dollars a month but for that, you get uh, access to 50 10-minute videos of, of Steve uh, breaking down anxiety, talking about strategies for dealing with it. Um, and, and 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 a lot of this is specific to um, pastoral ministry or church ministry. Uh, there's a confidential discussion forum so that you can engage with other ministers and leaders who uh, might be dealing with anxiety. There's a monthly Zoom call so really just just a ton of resources that uh, you can open yourself up to uh, by joining capable So do check that out He said he's going to be starting a new group in early August. Uh, you can also follow Steve at Steve Cusswords on Twitter. And with that, I uh, will tie a bow on this episode. And like I said, uh, it's uh, not a goodbye from me, but I'll see you later. I'll look forward to assembling a few more guests and interviews and episodes here. Uh, again, don't hesitate to reach out uh, to let me know. Uh, just send an email to the Naked Preacher Podcast at gmail.com and uh, I can maybe try to line up a, a guest or Uh, talk about a topic that might be helpful to you in in your ministry or in the way that you lead. So that's it for today. And until next time, preachers, be real. And I'm Paul's wife, Eliza, and I paid him $5 so he wouldn't make... Dang it! (laughs) Hi, I'm Paul's wife, Eliza, and I paid Paul $5 so you wouldn't have to listen to one of his (laughs) made-up... Sponsors. I don't know what's wrong with my brain. Made up sponsors. Jeez. You love the sponsors, don't you? I think they're very special. <laughs> <laughs>